All right. Welcome to Friday Fire. If this is your first time, uh, we just want to welcome you for coming out. This is our weekly prayer meeting here at our church. It is open to anyone, everyone who wants to come out, worship, and intercede together. Uh, tonight we have one of our intern pastors. She's going to be speaking for us. So let's go ahead and put our hands together for uh, Pastor Myung Hwa Choi. Right. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, everyone looks good. Oh, I actually like the sanctuary a lot. Uh, it gives me better like view of, on your faces and everything. So I actually like it. Um, my name is Myung Hwa Choi. Uh, as Pastor Christian introduced, I'm one of the intern pastors along with Marcus and John. And I'm happy to deliver the word of God to you guys. And I believe God can... Um, I believe and I hope that God will really speak to you uh, through this thing that I received from the Lord. Okay. Right. Let me begin by asking you a question. And everyone must answer. Okay. Are you in love? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. If you are in love, wave your hand in the air. All right. Who's not waving? <laughs> I believe we are all in love with Jesus, obviously, and some of you have spouse, some of you have boyfriend, girlfriend, and I can tell that everyone's sort of in love, right? And if you really love somebody, if you really like someone, you want to know that person better. Is that right? Is that true statement? You want to get to know that person. You want to know what kind of food they like. You want to know where they live. It's creepy. You want to know about their hometown, how they grew up, family, friendship. You want to know about them. Is that true? Is it just me? So when you are actually interested in someone or when you really love someone, you do little, your, your little research. You know what I'm saying? You go to their Facebook. You go to their old Zenga pages that the person doesn't even use. And you do your little research. Yo, don't pretend that you don't know what I'm talking about. I, I'm sure you all know, and you all have done it before, all right? So you, I do my little research. And it can't be that different when it comes to the Lord, when it comes to Jesus. When you are in love with Him, you want to know Him. You want to know the little things about Him when He was here on the earth. I don't even know Jesus' face. That's such a sad thing. That makes me sad. I don't know what kind of body Jesus had. I'm sure he was pretty buff. I've said this before. And I don't know what kind of neighborhood he grew up in, what kind of food that he liked. I don't really know much about him. And when we get curious, when we desire to know the Lord better, where do we go to? Yes, we turn to the Bible. Amen, Faye. Good point. (laughs) So I want us to turn to John 13 right now, everyone. Gospel of John, chapter 13. And tonight we're going to look at what Jesus did the night before he got arrested and actually died. The night before he was arrested by the soldiers. What do you think Jesus did? I want to know because I love Jesus. Do you guys want to know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. You, you have to. You have to know. <laughs> Whew. 
Let me ask you another question. If you know that tonight is the last night of your life, oh, your life is gonna end like tonight at midnight. What are you gonna do? Tell your neighbor what you're gonna do. What will you do? One night only. Kono Mercados, I knew that answer, Caleb. What would you do? <laughs> All right, different things, different things. But I'm sure what you want to do will be something very, very important or crucial to you. Is that right? You will definitely do something very important or crucial to you. You're not going to spend time st- stupidly like... Facebooking, you're not gonna do that. <laughs> you're not gonna go to like McDonald's and sitting by yourself. You're not gonna do that, you know, unless you really love McDonald's. You know what I'm saying? You're gonna do something very, very, very important that you will never miss out. So Jesus knew that this gathering of the night will be the last meeting, last time with his beloved disciples. He knew that this night was gonna be the last one that he will get to spend with these people as a free man before his crucifixion. So John 13 to 17, all these chapters, it's devoted to describe what happened at that meeting, the last supper, right? And there are some amazing teachings on truth about the amazing truth. Jesus is teaching and teaching and teaching. He's speeching, speeching. And from that one meal, he spoke a lot. So there's the Lord's supper that, um, that came from this meeting. And I am the true vine. You know, you're the you know, my father is the vine dresser, that part. I am the way, truth, and the life, that part. And you promise the Holy Spirit will come, that part. A new commitment to love one another. And that, that too. All these important teachings are all from that one dinner. And he spoke a lot, right? And how many of you agree that while he spoke that night are extremely important? If you know that, say amen. Yeah. How many of you know that he did, what he did that night must be remembered and followed by us? Say amen. amen. Right? It's something important that he did that night. And in chapter 13, uh, the passage that we're going to look at, uh, verses 1 throughout 20, it talks about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples one by one. And I will help you unfold this word, this, this story right here in front of your eyes. I'm going to help you through uh, like creating this 3D image in front of your eyes from this 1D scripture. Does that make sense? I want us to actually have that image, that vision, that, 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 that event. I want it in front of your eyes in a 3D form, right? Do you guys like 3D? I love 3D movies and it's so like amazing. And so I, I want us to create the 3D image of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Uh, in front of our eyes, okay? I'm going to help you through this because there's so many, so much more uh, the author wanted to communicate to us and a lot of them are actually been lost. I'm going to explain what that means later. So I want to challenge everyone sitting here right now. to. So, so today's sermon, actually, first half will be like teaching and then the latter half will be my preaching. But I couldn't cut it out because I really wanted to tell you guys about this. And this season, God is really calling me to study the word. Not just to read it, 
But Myeonghwa, go study the word. Yeah, it makes sense because I'm in seminary. But this is not only for me. I believe this is for the body. And I really want to challenge everyone to go study your Bible, the word of God. So don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to, telling you to quit your job. I'm not telling you to go to seminary. I'm simply telling you to dig deeper into what Bible is actually talking about, you know? So not necessarily, you don't have to go to like theology. Like you don't have to even go to like biblical languages. You don't have to master all those things. But because I believe the Bible is written for the believers, not for the scholars, not for just merely highly educated people or super smart people. I believe the book of Bible is written for every believer. Amen. And we want to cherish that gift from the Lord. Amen. Right. So, because I believe that it is for the body, for every single person sitting here, I want us to really just investigate and study and deep, go deeper into what Bible is actually talking about, right? So, the Bible is not meant to be a mysterious book. But when we read it, it seems like it. Do you guys agree? Sometimes we read it and we feel lost. It seems like we've, we feel like we don't have even ability to understand this on our own. Do you feel me? I feel that way often, especially when I read like Old Testament. And I feel like this is mystery. It's not possible to understand this. And I often just give up. And I'm just satisfied that I just read a chapter before I go to bed. And then I just, all right, you know. But the reason why we have to study Bible, here's the reason why. Firstly, I want us to just agree on one point. Do you all agree that the Holy Spirit divinely, say this, divinely, Inspire the human authors. Human authors. Say it. Right. It's divinely inspired by God, but human authors wrote it. Right? If you don't agree, you're going to come talk to me afterwards. So we do all, we all know and agree that scripture, therefore, is the inspired words of God. That's the foundation that I'm going to begin. And when the author wrote the books, he had things that he wanted to communicate to us, you know? And so he, or she, but there was no female author. So he picked and chose things that he wanted to communicate to us, right? So what to include and what not to include. He chose, he picked. And some things are written, therefore, and some things are not written. Is that right? So what we have is what, we, what, what is written. So the authors wrote certain things, and that's what we have. And these are the things that the author wanted to communicate to us, like clearly, but this communication hits the wall along the way. It's called differences. So the author never intended to hide things from us. Then where's the point of the writing? You know, he wrote things because he wanted us to know. But along the way, those are lost because there are so many differences. So what's blinding us right now when we read the Bible is the fact that we are too different from the original readers. Do you guys get that? So think about it. We live in different parts of the earth. We eat um, different food. We eat different food. Food is important. Uh, different society, different community, different ethnicity, different climate, different weather, different plantation, different yearly calendar, different holidays, different jobs, different languages, different... Everything, different symbols, even different literatures, different writing styles and reading styles, and everything's so different. 
Every single thing is different if you compare them, right? So what has never meant to be mystery to the original readers who had those background knowledges is right now simply mystery to us. We have no idea what the author is talking about sometimes. Because we live in this, this modern day and we don't have the background knowledge that we are supposed to have, you know? So in order to conquer this unintended gap, I'll call it in, intent, unintended gap, because the, the author didn't intend it. We never intended to have a gap, but it just happened along the way, you know? So we need to study the differences. So some scriptures need to be studied for this reason, unless you will never get the point of it. Like, it is our responsibility as a Bible readers to get that intended meaning of the scripture. So author, what did you want to write? God, what did you um, want to say through this human author, right? I'm going to give you a really interesting example. This I learned uh, in a class uh, from a teacher who is a missionary in Israel. So he lives in uh, Israel. He lived there for like 11 years. And he's a really uh, well-known scholar, at least in Korea. And he's a super smart man. And then he studied all these different culture, all these different uh, I guess, cultural differences, which we didn't get to do. So he taught us about, he told us about John the Baptist. And you guys all know what his menu was. What did he eat? What, did, what does the Bible say? Right, everyone knows this. Locusts and wild honey, it was his menu. He ate it, I guess, every day. And think about it, where did John the Baptist live at? Desert. That's right, desert of Judea. And where can you find locusts? Peter, you're right. Peter said caress, I think, right? Ground? They live in caress. They eat the grass, right? In order to find locusts, where do you go? Do you, can you find them in the city of Seoul? It's hard. We, we, you gotta go to like a park where there are a lot of grass is at. Does it make sense, right? So if you, if you think about it, you don't find locusts in the desert. So when Jewish people read the passage, they naturally know that it refers to something else, right? Because they, they can't find locusts in the desert, naturally. And there's a plant. It's a type of bean, and you can actually eat it. It's called harubim. That's the actual name in Hebrew name, harubim. But it has a nickname that the Jewish society, the community, they often commonly call it locust plant. Does it make sense? Locust plant. They call it locust plant. So if you take that locust and wild honey as this plant, it makes perfect sense that he ate those things, right? And this harubim, this locust plant, was actually a... Animal food, they usually fed it to like pigs and, you know, cows and stuff. But the humble people, the poor people, they actually had it like we eat rice. It was like their daily food because they were so poor, right? And if you read the prodigal son story carefully, when he was like rooming with those pigs, you know, when he was like, (laughs) when he was really hungry after he left the, the father's house, when he was with the pigs, that's what he was sharing with the pigs. That, that's what he was eating in that situation. It was that locust plant, right? So if you think about it, it's such a humble food. And I believe the author wanted to say through that sentence was, John the Baptist had a very humble lifestyle. He ate very poor, humble food. And he wore very 
the the what what is that? He was wearing like a camel skin, whatever clothes, whatever. That was a humble clothing too, because he couldn't find anything else better than that. So he wore just animal skins. He wore just he ate whatever. So it's it's a way of saying that he ate very humble food. But we never get to understand that because we think, oh, he ate locusts, weird, and then we just pass by, right? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it kind of funny? I thought it was really funny. So. Anyways, <laughs> so I, I, I'm starting to discover all these interesting factors about Bible. Oh, I don't really know it. I don't really understand what the author really wanted to say. And that's why I just wanted to challenge you guys. Uh, the resources are everywhere if you want to get in touch with them. It's everywhere. And you can buy a study Bible. You can get to read them, commentaries, even talking to your, your, your brothers and sisters about Bible, you know? It just helps you a lot in that sense. And another benefit that you will get by studying the Bible in that way is that you will naturally have eyes to see even the unwritten part. So a lot of times, the author pick and choose what to write, but the part that's left unwritten, maybe because they're not important or not necessary, but a lot of times because it's just given. Because the intended readers, the Jewish society, they don't need the description. They just know it. It's given, and they already have that in their mind, you know? So the author doesn't need to bother to write those things because everyone knows it, you know? So, so, for example, if I write a book and if I write a part about Busan, I'm not going to say, oh, Busan is a city in the southern part of Korea, which had like blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to write that because everyone in Korea knows where Busan is. Is that right? So the authors, they don't even bother to write those little things, but we have no idea what they are. So if you study the culture where Jesus lives in, the, the things, the houses, and just interesting things, the food and everything. It's just interesting. And when you actually study and read those things, you have insight to even see the unwritten parts. And it helps you understand what the author is really talking about. And this passage, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, the, 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 the Last Supper, when I just read it, um, it was wonderful. But when I read it after I studied it, it was in a whole different level. It gave me so much more depth in my understanding of what it was. So I'm going to help you walk you through this, okay? All right. So, all right. The last, pass, the last Passover supper, that's where we are at right now with Jesus and 12 disciples. So Passover, what day is it? What kind of day is it? Do you guys know Passover? Everyone knows it's uh, one of those holidays that they keep, but it's actually the most uh, valued, the biggest holiday the Jewish calendar has. So it's the biggest day. It's like Solar in Korea. It's like Thanksgiving in America? Christmas. Christmas. Oh, okay. Christmas. It's like the biggest holiday that you have in the calendar. And it's the day to remember and celebrate the exodus from the slavery of Egypt. So they came out of Egypt, and then this is a day to celebrate uh, what God did for them. So it's a big day. It's a day of freedom. It's a day of deliverance. And they celebrated really, really big. So Jews, they still keep this day pretty strictly. All these holidays, they keep it very strictly. And the Passover supper, it starts right after the sunset, right? Like, I guess 6.30, 
they start the meal and then it ends around midnight. So it's like a long celebration that they have yearly. And even the poorest of poor, they, poor of the poorest, anyways, the poor people, they even eat the meats one time a year. They get to eat meat at wedding banquets and at the Passover dinner, okay? So it's a big, big day. And that's the night before Jesus got arrested. How sad, you know, how sad is that? But in this most important meal of the year, let's see what Jesus does. Now, I want you to imagine um, the Last Supper in your mind. So Jesus, 12 disciples, table, food, and everything. Try to imagine that in your mind. I actually tested this to a handful of people, like five, six people, and they all saw the same vision. Guess what? <laughs> the Leonardo da Vinci, that, that, the Last Supper, the picture. You guys all know the painting, right? So every single person thought of the picture when I asked them to imagine that scene, right? And I'm sure like most of you picture that in your head as well. Is that right? Did you guys think about the painting? Man, it totally ruined it. Anyways, (laughs) it might be highly valued in art history. I, I, I agree. But all I know is he didn't study his Bible. He had no idea what he was drawing. Okay, he didn't do his research before he drew it. It it looks like, this is what my professor said. He, He actually said, if the Jewish people, if the Hebrew people, they see the picture, they will laugh. Like, like, until they die or something like that. They will laugh like crazy because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't really picture what happened at night. So he simply, it looks like Leonardo da Vinci, this guy, he simply moved these 13 people into his living room or something. You know, it just looks like it because he totally drew this picture in his culture, in his society, in his house, I guess, you know. So I'm gonna, I want you to show you the picture, but the painting, but Sorry, I couldn't prepare, so just imagine that in your head. And I'm going to tell you what are some wrong points that he did, wrong things that he drew. And this is important, at least to what I want to talk about later, so just follow with me, okay? So number one, there's a window in in that drawing. And in the window, it's like bright. It's like in the middle of the day or something. And that's clearly wrong, right? Because I told you that it starts right after the sunset and lasts the whole night, you know, until midnight. So that's totally wrong. And number two, he drew a wrong food. Guess what it is? (laughs) Fish. They do not eat fish on their Passover meal. It's not on the menu. And then I guess Leonardo da Vinci really liked fish. So it was on the table, but it's wrong. Okay. Wrong food. And number three, Wrong table and chairs. It's actually a big part of the drawing. So you know how in that drawing there is a big rectangular table and everyone is sitting on one side, like side by side? And that's completely wrong, okay? So guess what? They sat on the floor like Koreans do, all right? They sat on the floor and table was not rectangular. It was actually, it looked like a tigut. You know the Korean uh, consonant, tigut, tigut, tigut? Uh, I don't know, yeah, in English is like tree selenium. 
Is there such a, such a thing like that? Triselenium? It looks like tea good anyways. It's a tea good. And then the table looked like tea good. And then on that one open end, the servants will come and serve the food. And how smart is that, you know? And the people sit on the other side. All right? That's how it looks like. All right. Everyone smiling at me. It's good. And number four. It's a major, major mistake. Number four is wrong posture. They didn't eat like this. So, so the Bible, if you read the Bible, it's kind of confusing because it says Jesus arrived and reclined at the table. What does it mean? In John 13, 23, it says one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, it's John, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. In another translation, reclining at table in the bosom of Jesus. Hmm. What does that mean? So one commentator wrote this. He just suggested that John was a teenager. That's why he was always cuddling with Jesus. Just tell me that John was a gay or something. (laughs) I totally disagree with the commentator. But there is a reason why it says they reclined at the table. So I actually want to show you this. Um, I need three brothers to help me with this. If you want beautiful wife, come to the front. Three. Come, Bali. I, I need you guys. This is hard to explain with my words. So, yeah, come on, beautiful wife. Jamie, I bless you with beautiful wife. <laughs> yeah, Mexico, come on, one more. Peter, Peter, come on, Peter. All right. So, let's imagine that this part right here, let's imagine that there's a table, okay? One, one wing of the table is right here. And, okay, so, all right, one of you, can you uh, lie down on your left side? (laughs) Try it, just try it. Lie down on your left side. (laughs) Left side, left side, right, left side, right, right. And then put your head toward the table and then your feet toward the back. Table is like right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you do it here. Good. So this is a table. Right. And then try to lean on your left arm. Like on the, on the floor. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then try to like put your head toward the back. Uh, put your legs toward the back. <laughs> I know. No, 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 no. Your, your left arm straight up. Right. Lean on your left arm. Yeah, that's good. All right. And JF? <laughs> Come here. <laughs> Do the same thing in a parallel. Come on, beautiful life. Come on, Jay. <laughs> and you <laughs> lean on the chest of Matico. Try it. Try it. <laughs> and no pictures. Beautiful life, JM. Come on. Right. And Peter, come here. And you do the same thing. Do the same thing. All right. You can't really see Peter, but this is how they sat while they were eating. All right. So, okay. Thank you, brothers. Thank you so much. You guys are so loving. Yeah. Beautiful wives. (laughs) This is kind of... Like, like, how they can eat while they're sitting like that. But 
There is a reason why they do it, because you know they were so long for so long, long time. They were under the slavery, and they ate while standing up, and they were sick of it. So when they actually found the freedom after the Exodus, uh, it's actually the culture that flew from the Roman Empire. You know how those lazy royal people in Roman Empire they were lying down while they were eating, and then they would chew and spit it out. You know those stories. You know because they were so rich and so lazy. So they actually kind of adopted it to their culture, and then one meal of the day, uh, one meal of the year, this Passover supper, they actually did the same posture. So they were lying on the floor on their side way, and they were kind of like leaning on their left arm. I'm sorry to those who are listening to podcasts. It's hard to imagine, but that's how they sat and ate. So John was not gay. John was not <laughs> not a teenager. This is just how they said for that dinner, for the supper. Does that make sense? Right? Is it something new to you guys? It was new to me. I was really surprised. You know, right? It, it, they had such a unique posture for the dinner, and you know, and they had this background. Anyways, I'm gonna move on. All right. And number five, something wrong again. There was wrong seating arrangement. I don't know who all those people in the painting are, but I know one person in the middle. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus is in the middle, and that is wrong. So in this society, there was a very strict sense of hierarchy and like honor. So greatest person, and then the second and third, and to the least of them, it was very very strict. And if you think about it, when Jesus' disciples were like, at that, at that supper, they were asking, who is the greatest among us? So it was actually somehow a practical question. I mean, Jesus, after you leave, who's going to sit at the seat that you are sitting at right now? Like, who's going to take that? Because if Jesus is not there to settle that down, they're going to fight later, right? So that was actually somehow a practical question. I mean, who is the greatest among us? Does it make sense? They were not like dumb and dumbers, you know. I'm, I'm glad to find that out because I thought they were just fighting like elementary kids. But actually, there was a certain type of reason behind that, right? So, Jesus is in the middle and that is wrong. There was a seat for the guest of honor who is definitely Jesus, right? It's always the middle seat of the left wing of the table. Yo, it's draw it in your hand. Draw it in your hand. Okay, the left wing of the table in the middle seat... Jesus seat, the, the, the seat for the guest of honor. And on the right side of that guest, guess who said? The right hand man, the favorite one. And yeah, the John was sitting there. That's why this verse, 1323, you know, John was um, at Jesus' bosom, right? So that makes sense. So John was on the right side of Jesus. And let's, let's guess who was on the left side of Jesus. So Jesus was leaning on someone's chest. Guess who that person was? Who? Peter? Right, Judas. It was actually Judas, the betrayer. So when he was having the last meal, Jesus' head was actually upon the chest of Judas, the betrayer. So Jesus loved him until the end, knowing that he will betray him. Isn't that amazing? So how do you find that out? 
It's actually in the Bible. There are different hints. And if you are a Jewish person, you can totally just easily guess that. And since we don't have it, we just like trust, trust that those who studied it. But Judas was on the left side of Jesus. Uh, one of the reasons was, uh, you know, Judas was in charge of money in that uh, disciples. And usually the one who organized the meeting or the one who was in charge of money uh, the accountant, I guess, like, what is that called? The, the money person was always on the left side of the guest of honor, right? So it was John, Jesus, and Judah sitting together and sharing one set of meal together, right? And then there's like different, diff- uh, the hierarchy goes, and then to the least of them. So on the right, so imagine the right wing, okay? The left wing was taken by all these honorable people. And on the right wing, guess which one is the worst seat? Yeah, think, think that someone's leaning on your chest and you also want to lean on someone. But the person at the end of the right wing, that person doesn't have anyone to lean on, right? So that person's got to sustain his whole body and this person with one arm. Does that make sense? Throughout the whole long meal. So there is a seat that's called the lowest place. And the worst and the humblest, you know, there is a seat at the end of the table. All right? So you guys have the picture in your head, right? The 3D picture is getting formed right now. It's interesting, huh? So... With this knowledge in mind, let's go to Luke. Oh no, I, I will read it for you. Luke twenty-two, twenty-four. Oh, actually, actually, I covered it. Though. Who is the greatest among us? That question. Mm-hmm. And then you can guess why that happened. You know, because Jesus, after Jesus leaves, who's going to take the seat? That's why they, you know, had that dispute. They had that argument. And also, without this knowledge, Luke fourteen. 8 to 11, it's not going to make sense to you. It's a mystery to you. But since you have this right now in your head, it, it, it goes like this. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place. Because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by the host. And the one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? Do you guys have the picture? If you sit here, you're going to get bumped bumped up to the nice seat. And if you sit there, you're going to be humiliated and move back to the lowest place. You know, that's what Jesus is talking about, you know. And now I want to ask you this. If you've read your Bible, the, especially the Gospels, you can easily guess this question, okay? So who do you think out of all these disciples would have run to the lowest place after hearing this teaching? Yes, Peter. <laughs> Peter, being such a sanguine and being a, such a curious and fast person, I think it's a reasonable guess that Peter would have just run to the lowest seat because he wanted to, I guess, get bumped up to the, one of the nicer seats, maybe next to Jesus or something, right? So Peter took, it to, took this teaching to his heart and actually did it. 
And there's a situational evidence in this last supper when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Jesus all of a sudden said, one of you will betray me. And Peter was so curious, right? Who's, who, who is that going to be? And it is written that Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus who it was. So motion, your hand is on the ground. You know, you can't even move. And you're eating with one hand. So the motion, I guess, will be the, the chain action. Yo, ask. Yo, ask. John, ask. You know? And then if you think about John's posture, he cannot even see anyone other than the person, maybe the couple of people at the end of the opposite side, which is the least seat, the lowest place. You know, if you, you gotta, you gotta imagine, but it's hard to see the people sitting there. So it must be, Peter, Peter must have been seated the one, the, the lowest, or right next to that. Right? So Peter, in his own mind, oh, I'm going to take this lowest place, and Jesus is going to uh, say, friend, move over, uh, move up higher. But that actually didn't happen, right? I think it's reasonable guess that Peter was sitting there the whole time throughout the meal, right? Poor Peter. Yeah. So... I'm sure I'm a super sanguine person, so I can totally feel his pain. And I'm sure Peter was upset. I'm sure he was pretty upset. Jesus, you taught one thing and you're not keeping your words. Like, I sat at the lowest place and you're not moving me up. Like, what are you teaching to me? You know, I'm pretty sure Peter was pretty upset, you know. And if you know the background, this is given thing, so it's not even written. But one thing is, Judas was the only person who's from this area called Kariot, Kariot in Korean, Kariot, and everyone else was from Galilee. And then their relationship is like Gyeongsangdo and Jeollado in Korea. It's like really bad. They curse each other, they despise each other. So basically, Judas was like the Wangta, Wangta. He was like the loner of the disciple group. Does it make sense? So Peter as like one of Jesus' favorite disciples, was sitting at the lowest place in that, you know, honor and, and, and hierarchy is such a big thing. He's sitting at the lowest place, and then Judas, that Judas is sitting right next to Jesus, and Jesus is leaning onto Jesus' chest. And I'm sure Peter was pretty upset. He didn't like the situation. And there was one thing that made Peter's feeling worse, because there is... um. Something that you got to do when you sit at the lowest place. When there is like a servant serving food, that servant comes to the people and then the servant washes the feet of the people one by one. That's the culture there. And they got to do it, finish the Passover dinner. And they, it was a secret gathering. You guys know that, right? Because Jesus was being chased. It was a secret meeting. I guess there was no one to do that, no servant to do that. Then who responsibility is it it's actually peter's so peter was supposed to be doing it throughout the meal or before the meal but peter in his bad mood being upset i'm sure he didn't want to do it so guess who stands up for that jesus stood up took the towel and then he started washing the feet of these disciples can you imagine what peter was thinking Oh, snap, that's my job. What do I do now? Do I stop him? It's embarrassing. What do I do? But I'm not the least of them. I'm not the least of this group. All kinds of different thoughts. This is my guess, by the way. 
And I want us to give our attention to this drastic contrast. Look at Jesus and look at Peter. Look at Jesus and look at Peter. What I see in Peter in this scene is wrong humility. I will call it false humility. Yes, he took the lowest seat. He's sitting at the lowest place from the outward. But he declined the lowest duty. He wanted to sit there to look humble, I guess, or maybe to go to the higher place, but he declined the lowest duty. But what I see in Jesus is true humility. He took the highest place. He didn't mind it. He didn't deny it. Yet, he didn't mind the humblest work. You know? And so many of us, and this society, and especially, sadly enough, the churches, tell us that humility is putting ourselves down, keeping us down. It's about going lower, being nothing, not talking about yourself, n- nothing good about you. Don't say about those things. Like, be nothing. Say that you're nothing. You know how in this society, confident people, they get misunderstood as arrogant people and prideful people, you know? And they're just simply confident in themselves, you know? People think saying I am nothing in church is humility. Oh, I'm nothing. Oh, I'm nothing. They think it's humility. And they think denying anything good about themselves is humility. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm nothing. You know how Korean culture, if someone compliment one of the Koreans, they go, oh, shaking their head. <laughs> you know how they go, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not. You know how they do that? I don't do it anymore, so feel free to compliment me. But <laughs> most of the Koreans, they don't take it as it is. They say, no, 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 not me. I'm nothing. They don't know how to take it. Because that's the wrong, distorted sense of humility. Do you guys get that? And I want to confront that thinking right now. I believe that's not biblical. That's not, that's not what Jesus is teaching. I want us to have this paradigm shift right now in our head. In our head. How many of you know that? We need to know who we are in Christ. How many of you know that? We need to know who we are. How many of you know that we are seated along with Christ Jesus on the right hand of God? Do you know that? We're above the first heaven, second heaven. We are seated in the third heaven, you know, in the presence of God. Do you know who you are? You know? Do you know where you are seating at right now? Do you know that you're royalty? You belong to the royal family? Do you know that you are a princess or prince? Do you know that you are going to be a queen? Do you know that? Do you know that you have the authority? Do you know that you're a treasured possession? Do we all know that? That identity? And so many churches are just caught up with, without God, I'm nothing. And I agree with that. That's true. But they're so obsessed with nothingness that they don't even know that they are something when they're in the Lord. They're told that, I gotta say, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, that they forgot that they must be something when they are in the Lord. You know what? God promised that he will never leave me or forsake me. Is that right? So I don't have to worry about becoming nothing because he's never going to leave me. It's never going to happen. Why do you keep reminding yourself that, 
about something that will never happen to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that nothingness will never happen to you. Why do you keep saying, I'm nothing without God? But you will never be without God. You will always be with God. And you must be something then. Right? Come on, somebody. (laughs) You know? It makes me upset. It makes me upset. You are something. Turn to your neighbor and tell them you are something. You are something great. (laughs) So without God, I'm nothing. I agree. But let's stop teaching that. Let's stop contributing to that false humility. Let's stop pursuing that. You know? Remember, Jesus never denied himself or talked lowly about himself for the sake of humility. He never did it. He never denied who he, he, who he was. He never talked lowly about him. Oh, he didn't do that. He knew who he was. You know, in Old Testament, I thought it was so interesting. And my brother John pointed it out. And I thought it was an amazing thing. Bible talks about this one man who was the humblest man on the face of the earth. Do you know who that is? Jesus? <laughs> it was Moses, right? And guess what? Guess what? Who wrote that line? Moses wrote it. Did you, did you guys know that? <laughs> yeah, did you guys know that? Moses, the humblest man, wrote that. I am the humblest man on the earth, face of the earth, right? This is the Bible. This is who I am. Yeah, isn't it so funny? <laughs> Will you say that he is prideful or something? He's a humble man. He knew he, who he was. He knew who he was. And we need to shift this paradigm of humility, you know? And I want you to um, turn to your neighbor and tell them whatever you want to say to them. Like, whatever you're good at. Like, say, I'm beautiful. I'm great. Um, I'm awesome. And whatever you want to say, like Moses did, is tell them something about you. Something great. Something good. Come on. No, no, no. Not you are, but I am awesome. Right. Right. Just know who you are. Yeah. Right. Right, Faye? You are beautiful. Come on. I'm happy to have this great audience. You guys are great. Thank you so much. And I believe the key aspect of humility that Jesus is modeling to us is something else. What he's showing to us through his humility, I think the key is obedience. Let me explain this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is exactly what Jesus taught. He humbled himself and God exalted him to the highest place. And NIV is even even easier. It's clearer. It's simpler. He humbled himself, say, by. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, say, for this reason. For this reason. 
God has highly exalted him. Good learners. For this reason, why? Because Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. By becoming obedient, Jesus humbled himself. By becoming obedient, that's how Jesus humbled himself. And that was the reason why he got exalted by the Father. There is a truth right here. Key is obedience to whatever humble calling that you might receive from the Lord on your daily life. Obedience to things that you don't like, things that you don't want to do, things that people don't even recognize or honor you for. Obedience to humble things regardless of your position, status, title, regardless of where you are sitting at at the table. The point is not where you are sitting at. The point is what you do. Like, whether you obey the calling or not. Do you guys get that? And then Jesus shows it over and over again. This is not just a one-time thing. Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king. Because you can tell by two things. Number one, people uh, on the street, they put on the palm tree leaves and clothes that they were wearing. They put it on the ground and paved the way, right? And you know what that means? It is a sign of honor to the king or a great prophet. So they honored Jesus as a king or as a great prophet. And Jesus didn't stop them. All right, go ahead. And they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. It literally means safe now. But in that community, it was commonly used as this praise to God. It was just like, hallelujah, Hosanna, you know? And they were saying, Hosanna and Hosanna. And Jesus didn't say, oh, nothing. Stop saying that. He didn't do that. He let them praise him because he was the king. But one thing, even though he knew who he was, he was riding on a donkey. He didn't look that kingly on the little donkey. You know what I'm saying? The little donkey. And he didn't look for kingly looking war horse, which kings would usually ride on. He didn't look for one. He didn't say, what is this? I'm not going to ride on this little donkey. Give me something kingly looking. He didn't say any of those. He just simply obeyed. It's like this for sisters. So you are going to a prom, a big dance party. And God tells you to wear this baggy pair of jeans and mission t-shirts or something. (laughs) It's just like that. It doesn't look ladylike at all. It doesn't look that attractive at all. But Jesus didn't mind the donkey. It doesn't look like a king, but he just simply obeyed. He went on the little donkey and tumbling his way into the Jerusalem. You know what I'm saying? To fulfill the prophecy, he obeyed the Father's voice. And humility. And Jesus, after this Last Supper, he got arrested. Soon after the Last Supper, he got arrested because Judas reported, right? And he asked, whom do you seek? And then the soldiers say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answers, I am he. You know what happens? All these soldiers drew back and fell on the ground. Do you know why? Because this this phrase, I am he, 
That was reserved for deity alone. Only God, Jehovah, could say that. Because in Numbers, I mean Exodus, God says, I am who I am. You know, that's who he is. And Jesus saying in front of those soldiers, I am he. That's the only God can say, you know, something that God, only God can say. Oh, why am I like, wait, I am he. They were like, oh, who is this guy? That's why they fell like automatically because he said, I am he. And they ask again. And Jesus asked again, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I told you that I am he. He confirms it, that I am he. You know? And they just arrest him. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he was on the same, he was the same Trinity God, the part of the Trinity God. You know, I am who I am. I am he. He knew who he was. Yet, he let those you know, wimp soldiers arrest him and treat him as a criminal. You know, take him to the court. You know, make him, him kneel down on the ground. He submitted and obeyed because he knew that it was the call from the Father to fulfill something greater. What a great humility. And when, when Jesus was crucified, when he was hanging on the cross, there was a plate on the cross reading, King of Jews. Yes, it is true statement. He came as king of Jews, but it was up there in order to mock him. You know? But it was true. He was the king of Jews. And Jesus knew that he truly was the king of Jews. Yet Jesus let them nail him on that ugly cross. He let them give him the death of the cursed, of the worst criminal. Knowing who he was. And Jesus truly, truly humbled himself to the point of death. Even the death on the cross. Because it was the Father's will to do that. He obeyed to the worst, to the lowest, to the humblest calling of all time in the history as a true king. It's a paradox. I can't even imagine. I can't grasp that. I gave you enough examples, and I want to end with uh, my personal story. There is a moksanim that I really respect and honor, and I really look up to him. He's actually a KM. He's one of the KM moksanim there. I've known, known him for almost, almost like two years. But the reason why I honor him so much, I, I respect him so much, is simply this humility. He is such a humble man. So he was in charge of this popcorn machine. Right, this is a simple little popcorn machine, and we needed it for like a movie night or something. So I went downstairs. Moksanji, we need the popcorn machine. Can we can you borrow it for like a couple hours? And he himself carried that heavy thing all the way upstairs. He didn't have to do it. He helped us carrying it upstairs. He taught us. He demonstrated how to do it with a big smile on his face, and he even cleaned the chunks that the people who used it previously didn't clean up. He did it with such a humble heart, you know, with no grumbling, with such a Christ-like heart. I was blown away, you know. And I was thinking, wow, that's amazing. And, and I learned that it's, 
more powerful to see a humble man who has a great title, like humble pastor or like humble, let's say like someone high, someone who have a really great title, like Deacon Zhang, let's say. Deacon Zhang has a really awesome job and he's such a great, great humble man. You know what I'm saying? So when I see those like humble men who have great like position or title or whenever I see them, it has more influence somehow. Does that make sense? It could be my personal thing. It's my opinion. But I want to just encourage and challenge all the people who are in the leadership training. Oftentimes, as we go higher up in our leadership status, uh, you know, we have the army rank going up and up and up. And, you know, small group to house church leader, from that to, like, leadership coach. And, you know, there's, like, rank and level of leadership. And you... You, a lot of us, we think that we will be done with the small, little, trivial things when, when we go up there. But I just want to tell you that that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. If you love the church that Christ loved, and if you embrace this concept of humility that Jesus modeled to us, you will even do more. So when, when you know, in Jesus' case, when, when his disciple Peter, when he didn't step it up, Jesus stepped it up. He didn't say, yo, yo, Peter, do do this. Wash my feet. He didn't say that he stood up. He modeled himself. He did it himself, modeling, you know, to the whole crew. And I think I'm personally convicted that that's what I have to do. That's what I have to remember as I go higher in my leadership, in my spiritual authority, like Jesus did. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to do the same thing. It might be frustrating. And you sometimes have to hammer your disciples or or not. You have to. Do it. But don't forget what Jesus did. Don't forget to model it. And one of the core values, the nine core values, it's be faithful with the small things. And I think it really matches what I am trying to say. And Jesus was really faithful with small things, even though he was a king of glory. The king that we serve is a humble king. That is the title of my message, the humble king paradox. I named it like that because I thought it was such a paradox. Humble king doesn't really make sense in this world. You know, king can't be humble if he doesn't, if he only does kingly things, you know. If king does only kingly things, he's not a humble king. But when the king got out of his heavenly throne and actually took the humblest task of the fallen world in obedience to the father, the father exalted him to the highest place again as the humble king. When he came down, he was maybe the king of glory, but he was exalted back to his throne. He was the humble king. Let's pray, church. God, I just want to bless this group of people right here, God. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you give us hunger for your word, God. What an amazing gift that we have, that we hold in our hand every day, God. But Lord, I just pray that we will not only be just content with reading it, 
but we'll just eat it up. We will, Father, understand. We will dig deeper. We will get the things that you wanted to communicate to us. And God, I just pray that you release that wisdom to this group right now. And Father, I thank you that the King of Glory came down, got out of that kingly throne, and did the humblest task of this world. God, I can't grasp what that really means. Leaving that third heaven and coming into this fallen world and becoming sin for this. People like me, like us. But Father, we thank you that because of your obedience, your name is exalted in all nations, God, to the highest place. And God, we thank you that we share that highness with you. And in you, we are no more nothing, but we are something. We are co-heirs. We are royal family. And God, we thank you so much for that. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the future leaders and the active leaders, reserve leaders, and everyone in this room, God, because we know that in one, at one point we are called to leadership in any form, in any setting. Father, I pray that you release that servant leadership, God, that it's not about where to see that, but it's about willingness to take that humblest task wherever we are at, simply obeying the things that you call us to do, God. And Lord, I pray that you release the radical obedience, no matter how fast we grow, no matter how high we get to in our leadership. But Lord, let us never, 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 never forget what you taught us tonight. And God, we thank you that you are such a great, humble king. We love you so much, Jesus. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.